Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us how the Bible says that a very small remnant of his people are left today. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Father, thank you so much for being our teacher. Thank you so much for being our guide through this life. Lord, and that we have the privilege and the honor to call you Father, our Father. And so now we come to you, our Father, and ask you to teach us, your sons and daughters, in this room this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Genesis 4.25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. And for God said, she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom God slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam. In the day that they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness. And the days of Adam, after he begotten Seth, were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, this is a wonderful passage here. And last week in Genesis 4, we focused, as we've had since we started to see this great truth emerge before our eyes, on two groups of people. A very, very small group, when we came to Genesis 4, the end of 4, of just two people, Adam and Eve, and a large, expanding, blossoming group, which we call the line of Cain. And the very small group of Adam and Eve was God's seed. And the blossoming line of Cain was the devil's seed. Now just picture in your mind those two people of the very, very small group of Adam and Eve. And there they are. And there next to them is the seed that's growing and it's blossoming and it's getting larger in numbers and more bold in their achievements and productions and especially in their sin. And so they're being like overshadowed this little group of Adam and Eve, totally overshadowed by this group of the line of Cain. It's exactly a description of Isaiah 60, verse 2, where it says, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. That's what you see in Genesis chapter 4. This was a time of darkness covering the earth, and gross darkness covering Adam and Eve. And at that time, if we were to compare Adam and Eve as the group to Lines Cain, a very, very small group of Adam and Eve, there's a particular title, if you want to turn, but I'm sure you know this verse, in Isaiah 1.9, where it says, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. Very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Now, that's the title for Adam and Eve. They're a very small remnant. And today, in comparison to the vast majority of Jewish people, we have another 
very small remnant, like Adam and Eve. And who are they? Those are the Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the very small remnant. And compared to the majority of Jewish people who don't accept the Lord Jesus Christ, these are the very small remnant. So just on Friday, I was talking to my Russian Orthodox rabbi friend, Yaakov, and we like each other. And Yaakov says to me, Tom, you can't be right about Jesus, he says to me. And so I said, why? And he said, because none of our grandparents for five generations believed in Jesus. And so I said, well, you're 100% correct. And he is 100% correct. Compared to the vast majority of Jewish people, Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are a very small remnant. But Isaiah 1.9 tells us much more than just the fact that they're small in numbers because it goes on to say that there's a decision process that God goes through. And it tells us in Isaiah 1.9 how God decides when he's going to bring down judgment. That's why you can look at that verse and you can say, this is God's decision, judgment decision verse in Isaiah 1.9. It tells us that if there was no very small remnant, like the group of Adam and Eve, that God would just bring judgment on the earth and he would make the earth to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. So what it's teaching us in Isaiah 1-9 is that when God looked on the earth and he saw that the line of Cain had just filled the earth with murder, that God had to make a decision. And he says... Shall I say, it repents me that I've made man, I'll destroy him from off the face of the earth? And how's he going to make his decision? It says to us that what he does is instead of looking at the expanding line of Cain and all their murder and so forth, he turns and he focuses on this very small remnant of Adam and Eve. And he says to himself the same thing that he said about Abraham. It's a great verse. We want to turn to it in Genesis 18, 17 through 19, because it's not very often in Scripture that we're let in on how God's thinking process is. It's wonderful when you read these verses like this, and he begins to talk to himself or to other members of the Godhead, which is what he does here in Genesis 17 through 19. And it says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Well, who's he talking to? He's not talking to Abraham. He's talking among the Godhead. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing that I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Question. That's God's question. And then God answers the question with these great three words. For I know him. Those are the words that God uses. That's his answer. I know him. And what did he know about him? He will command his children and his household after him. And what's going to happen? And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham the thing which he promised, which he has spoken of him. So those three verses, you can see there God thinking. He says, now, let me think. Now, let me think. I consider it. Let's see. Should I hide from Abraham the thing that I'm going to do? That's what's on the table. And he says, no, Abraham is my friend. And he says those great words, I know him. I know Abraham. Boy, would to God he say that about us, huh? Isn't that great? Well, it is 
to me, anyway. So what did God know about Abraham? God knew that Abraham would take his role of being a father of his children very seriously. You know, Abraham was not the kind of father that says, you know, get away from me, you squirts. You know, that was not Abraham. Abraham looked at those kids and he said, you know, as long as they're under my roof, I'm going to love them, I'm going to teach them, I'm going to command them. And that's what he did. Abraham started a generation, he started a tradition of a godly heritage, just like David did, just like King David did when he taught Solomon, in this verse we've looked at before, in 1 Chronicles 28, 9. And it's so amazing because here you were let in on this really private, intimate time when David the father is speaking to Solomon, his son, and he says to him, And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of thought. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. And so what happened? And there's two things that David told Solomon to do. Know and serve. Know him. That's the goal of your life, Solomon. Know him. That's what Paul said. Know him. Know him. And what should you do when you know him? Serve him. Know him and serve him. He was saying to Solomon, Solomon, I don't care anything else you may learn in life. Just listen to me now, Solomon. I'm your father who's speaking, and I'm telling you two words. I'm passing off to you the best that I've learned. Know God. Serve God. And not just God, but the God of thy father. You saw it in my life, Solomon. You saw how God has meant so much to me in life. Solomon, you saw that when in the really tough times even before you were born, when I was being chased about hillsides by Saul, you saw me write those psalms? You saw that? You know what happened with your mother and how I committed adultery and murder? And you know how God broke me down and I wrote Psalm 51 over it? And I give you that psalm now, my son Solomon, because I want you to know the God of your father because that's your God, that's my God. And then he says, and when you know him, don't just learn about him, give yourself wholly to him and serve him. Now, and as a result, David started a godly heritage. So Solomon, he strayed away from God, but he finally did return to God. And what he did is that he did the same thing that his father had done to him in Proverbs 4, 1 through 5, when he sat his children down. Solomon sat his children down, and he said, hear ye children the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsaking not my law. And then Solomon does something wonderful. He talks about his father to his children. And he says, I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. And now the question is, so what did he do when he was the father's son? Did he just go up to him every time, just hug him and say, I love you, son? You know, he says, what he did, he says, he taught me also and said unto me, let thine heart Retain my words. Keep my commandments and live. See, he loved him. He taught him. My neighbor, Greg Hammond from Hammond Construction, lives around the corner. He told me one thing. I'll never forget this one time. Something very wonderful about his parents, who are our next-door neighbors. And he just said to me, Tom, I have great parents. Isn't that wonderful? 
That's what he said. I have great parents. God knew Abraham. He was going to be a great parent because he was going to be a strong leader in his home and he was going to teach his children and they wouldn't depart from God because he started this family tradition that went on for generations. God knew King David that he'd be a strong leader in his home, teach his children. He started this family tradition that went on for generations. And so the decision before God is, shall I just destroy mankind right now? I mean, it's gone so very bad, too, and this great big line of Cain over here being murderous. Why don't I just wipe them out? But God looked at Adam and Eve, and he said the same thing that he talked about Abraham in Genesis 18, 19. He says, I know them. I know them. I know Adam and Eve. They will command their children. They will command their household after him. They shall keep the way of the Lord. And that's how God decided to not bring down judgment on the earth at the end of Genesis 4 because of the line of Cain. And that's how God decided to not make the earth a Sodom and Gomorrah at that point in history. Adam and Eve was the very small remnant that held back judgment. January this year, Israel, the country of Israel's Ministry of Public Diplomacy and Diaspora Affairs, they began to recruit homosexual and lesbian envoys to send into the world to promote Israel as a friendly place for homosexuals so that Tel Aviv could continue to be, as it is known today, the gay capital of the world. Now, homosexuality was the sin that brought down God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Israel is the country where Sodom and Gomorrah is located. So here's the question. If Israel's recruiting homosexual envoys and Tel Aviv is now considered the gay capital of the world, what keeps God from judging Israel like he judged Sodom and Gomorrah? That's the question. Answer, Isaiah 1.9. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been like the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a very small remnant of Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's keeping the whole land of Israel from being destroyed. The Jewish believers, the very ones that most Jewish Israelis would just as soon left the country, are the very ones who are keeping the country from being destroyed. Now, so if God looks at the very small remnant of his seed and he holds back judgment, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ meant when he said in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. You are what keeps back the rotting process. And it seems like God really doesn't want to judge people. He really doesn't want to send them to hell. And he says that in Ezekiel 18.32. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. That's what God has pleasure in, in the repentance and life that comes after it. Tom, today you said that God does not want to send anyone to hell. And how the Bible says that when he does, he has no pleasure in it. Now, we live in a world that is defiant against God and calling his bluff. And if we were God, we would look forward to taking vengeance. Now, how can we really understand that God does not take pleasure in taking vengeance by sending people to hell? Well, it's a very, very good question because the issue here is we're not God. 
And so, therefore, we need to learn who God is and what he's like. And so the picture that really gives us the clear the clarity on this issue is in Luke 15, which is the parable of the prodigal son. Really, it's a parable, and the main person here is the father of the prodigal son. Luke 15, 10 reads like this, Likewise, I say unto you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. So what he's going to tell us now is he's going to explain to us how is there joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And the real issue here is who is in the presence of the angels and having all this joy? And we're going to see as we read this that it's the prodigal son's father. It's God the Father. So he's going to explain this to us as he goes on, which he does in Luke 15, 11, when he says, A certain man, that's, that's the prodigal son's father, a certain man had two sons. And the father and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that followed to me, and he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now, let's just stop here. First of all, what we have is we have the focus, as we've said, is on the father. We always put the focus on the prodigal son because that's us in this parable given to us to make us understand. But the focus is on the father of the prodigal son. It's on God. It's going to show us how can God be so joyful in the presence of the angels, and therefore the angels take up the lead of God the Father in his joy over one sinner that repenteth. And so we have then the the parable to help us understand. And now what happens to the prodigal son is that he's very defiant against God. He says to the father here in the parable, I wish you were dead. Give me all the money now. Why do I have to wait? I've got people to see. I've got things to do. I've got pleasures to enjoy. Just all right, give me the money and I'm out of here. I've hated being in your house for all the time that I was here. That's essentially the kind of tone that's coming across here. It's a real slap in the face. And so, but the father graciously, didn't have to, but he graciously, in verse 12, he divided unto them his living. He gave them, gave it to them. And so the younger son goes, and and as a picture in the foolhardiness in our lives, it says he wasted everything. He was living in riotous living. He not only wasted, but he drove his own life down to the level of being in the gutter, as the parable tells us here, with the swine. 
And then it says that he came to himself, and, and when he comes to himself, he says, where am I and what have I done? That's basically what every sinner who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ has to come to, saying, where am I and what have I done? In other words, how did I end up here? Where am I? I'm in the effects of sin. What have I done? I've sinned against God. And so it says that he comes to himself and he comes with a real feeling of humility when he says, I'm not worthy to be called thy son. And he thinks all this through and then he acts on it. He arose and he came to his father. Now, now is where we pick up the, the continuation of this picture when it says, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. So here's the big question. It says, so how come he saw, how come the father saw him a great way off? How come the father saw him a great way off? And the answer is because he was looking, because he was yearning, because he was wanting his son to return. He dreamed of the day when he would come to himself, and he longingly, every single day, this father was out there stretching his eyes, looking, oh, my son, my son, you know, how I've yearned for you. I mean, that's a picture that's here, and that, he says, is the picture of God. That's the picture picture of God the Father. His heart is broken over the decisions that his son has made. His heart is broken over the condition that his son has gotten himself into, and his heart is yearning for his son to make the right decision to come back. See, that's what's going on here. And so, therefore, he's looking. And so, a real, real important part of this picture, of this parable that the Lord Jesus Christ is giving us are these words, when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. And he didn't see him a great way off with the desire, just wait till I get my hands on that boy. No, because immediately it says that when he's a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. So this shows what's going on inside the heart of the father. This showing off what's going on inside the heart of God the father. And it says, and ran and fell on his neck, see? So he ran, which shows he goes into action. He falls on his neck. It says he kissed him. And then he said, when, when the son speaks, which of course this always has to come first, the son speaks and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. See, that's like the sinner who says, I have sinned, I have sinned and I am not worthy to be saved, see? I am not worthy of anything. Now, that's all the person has to say. That was all that the son had to say. That's all that the sinner has to say. And from that point, he doesn't say anything more, but the father just, he's looking forward to this day. He kicks into gear, and the father then says to the servants, bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring hither the fatted calf, 
kill it. Let us be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found, and they began to be merry. See, that's the picture of God, and that's what the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to understand about God the Father. And when this gets within our hearts, when this gets within the heart of any person that God is compassionate, God is loving, God is saving, God is forgiving, God does not want to send anyone to hell. God wants to save. God wants to save everyone from the worst sinner on up. That's that's what God wants to do. This makes God very, very happy. And when that concept, when that truth lodges itself in the heart of a sinner, you know what that sinner's going to do? That sinner is going to come to himself and he's going to say, just like that son did, I'll go, I'll say. See, that's what he's going to do. I'll go, I'll say. And then you know what he does? He does go, and he does say. And where does he go? He goes to the Father, just like the Son. He goes to God, goes to God the Father. And what does he say when he goes and gets to God the Father? Does he say, look what a great prize you got? No, he goes and he confesses his sin. And he says, I'm a sinner, a great sinner. I've sinned against you. I've sinned, and I've done horribly. And he delineates even. And then he says, I am not worthy. So he doesn't come to God and say, look what a great prize. He says, God, I'm very, very sorry that I ruined my life, that I violated your commandments, that I lived my life in rebellion against you, that I was in defiance against you. I'm so sorry about that. And I've wasted it all on terrible living. I've done all that. And then he finds out the truth that God does not want to send anyone to hell. And he is saved and he finds that there's great joy in the part of God. And that's that's what this is trying to tell us. Thank you for joining us today. Now, we're offering Tom Cantor's new DVD today, What is a Jew by Choice versus a Jew by Birth? This is a great scriptural study on how God has not cast away his people, but that we all need to make the choice to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Messiah. This is a great Bible study for any Christian or a great evangelism gift to reach a lost Jewish person with who may be searching for the truth and the evidence of the scriptures and who the Messiah really is. So you can call us today, 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051. Call us today, get your copy of Tom Cantor's DVD, What is a Jew by Choice Versus a Jew by Birth? You can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to go to our online bookstore and order your copy today or call us at 1-800-247-3051. Thanks for listening.